Welcome to the GateWorld Podcast. This is episode number 101 of the GateWorld Podcast. I'm Darren. I'm David. And welcome back, everybody, to a brand new season of the podcast. This is a show where two nerds talk about Stargate. We've been on hiatus for seven weeks. Is that and all? now fall is here, and we're back in the habit, ready to talk about the second season of Stargate Universe. Wow, I didn't realize that was it. It feels like it's been a lot longer than that. Yeah, it's gone by fast for me. How you doing? I'm well. I am working my butt off. In, I bet at PropWorks. Yeah, PropWorks. So there's a there's a huge auction coming up. Just I think probably hours after this podcast goes live. Yeah, yeah. I've been really busy with PropWorks, which is the official Stargate auction. And mm-hmm. uh, at about the time that this thing is going to go up, there is going to be a live auction. It's this coming Saturday and Sunday, the 25th and 26th. It's what I've been working towards all year long. If you want to learn more about it, check out StargateArtifacts.com. We're selling wow. off the Travel Stargate. We're selling off the Iris, the briefing room table, costumes, 850 lots, if you can believe it. Wow. And Thor? So, Thor is in there? Thor is, Thor is in there. I mean, the Ark of Truth is in there. There's going to be two live auctions, so pretty much half of everything that you can imagine is going to be in there. The Super Soldier, Angel. Ancient drones, weapons, 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 zats, staffs, one working staff. It works? It actually fires? It doesn't fire, but it opens and closes. <laughs> wow. It's the Sodan genius. staff from Babylon that uh, I think, oh, the short I think Joanne had. Yeah, exactly. Okay. So that one opens and closes. It's cool. If you guys have been watching GateWorld at all this year, you've known that for about six months we've been tracking the PropWorks auctions online on eBay. And believe it or not, all those auctions, every single week there's been tons of auctions, and you've done write-ups on GateWorld for what, like PropWorks auctions week 22 or something like yeah, that? Yeah, we, uh, we got up to week 32 now. All of that has just been the teaser, has just yeah. been the... The appetizer for the live auctions, which is what PropWorks is holding the big awesome stuff that yeah. if you are a Stargate fan with some disposable income and you want to own a piece of this franchise, this is it. I'm not sure how much this stuff is going to be out sort of circulating among collectors. I think yeah. once people get a hold of some of this stuff. They're going to hold on to it. Well, you know, I, I've been watching like a lot of the trends with the Star Trek stuff over the years. And, right. you know, people die. You know, people who are holding on to this stuff, they expire. And or they, they lose interest in it or they want to get something else. Or some people are just content to hang on to something for a little while and then they move on and they sell it. But if you're ever going to find it all in one place, this is the time to get it. You know, this, mm. this is really the time to go after it. So there's a commemorative catalog. It's, it's basically an art book that's going out with the auction. It's got high resolution pictures yes. of everything in it. You've got your copy on the way. That. Yeah, I wanted to talk about the book. I mean, going and spending a few hundred or a few thousand dollars at a yeah, Target auction. You can't do, most people can't do it. But this book, full color, glossy book, is not only gorgeous, but it's an archive of Stargate history itself. Yep, and it's one of two. It's four pounds. It is. It is a textbook. It is that. That's how sturdy it is. That's one of the things that I love about it. It is. It is. It is thick. Uh, all 850 lots are preserved, and I think. 470 pages or something. It's got interviews in it from everyone from Rob Cooper to Ken <laughs> Rebell, who designed the DHD. I don't think anything has ever been produced quite like this. I mean, the illustrated guide, the Stargate SG-1 illustrated guide, I think you can kind of compare it to it. But personally, I think this is much cooler because it's just... 
you, you got to check it out online. And, and again, at uh, StargateArtifacts.com, you can actually download a, a PDF version of it. But so so everyone can have access to it. That's that's what and I are, love. There's no are way. People, and are people going to be able to actually buy the catalog if that's what they want to have? If they absolutely maybe can't afford to to place a bid. Absolutely, yeah. The catalog is basically an art book that goes along with the auction. It's first and foremost, it is what we are using to do the auction. We go from literally lot one to lot eight fifty one over two days. But after that, it becomes an art book. It becomes a commemorative item. So. And this weekend, we're going to be able to watch some of this streaming on the web live, right? Yes, the address is ustream, U-S-T-R-E-A-M dot TV slash channel slash PropWorks, P-R-O-P-W-O-R-X. We're starting at 9 a.m. Pacific time and going, you know, until the the 450 lots, I think, on the first day, Saturday, are finished, mm. well into the evening, most likely, and then 9 a.m. Sunday. So check it out. It's really cool. It's what I've been working toward all year to help create. I'm really interested to see some of the prices, especially with the economy, you know, it's it's been yeah. tough on people. People, you know, people don't have a lot of disposable income, and I'm. It's it's going to be interesting to see how it goes. Well, our topic for this podcast is season two of Stargate SGU. This podcast is our season two pregame show. We're getting ready for the season premiere, which is in just a few days. But before we talk about it, we have a very special guest to beam in. <laughs> We'd like to welcome back Miss Diana Botsford to the GateWorld podcast. If you listen to episode 100, she was one of our special guests. And as promised, uh, we wanted to bring her back for our pre-game show. Diana, welcome. Hey, guys. Thanks for having me back. Eager to talk about uh, this uh, next round of episodes for SGU. It's sophomore season. You expressed a lot of insight about uh, season one, and we really wanted to talk to you about where we wanted to go, about where the show was going in season two. We wanted to bring you in for that the uh, the cliffhanger yeah before we jump into the cliffhanger let's just say for listeners if you're used to the gate world podcast being spoiler free this one's gonna be a spoiler light i would say not entirely spoiler free if you're worried about learning anything at all about the upcoming season like you're avoiding trailers and and tv commercials and all that you should probably wait until after the season premiere maybe the first couple of episodes before you listen to this show um, otherwise, we're not going to talk about really specific plot stuff so much. We're going to talk about stuff that, that if you've watched the trailer from Comic-Con, if you've read any interviews with some of the producers, then this is sort of broad brushstroke stuff that you probably already know. So we left off, of course, um, in June. The season finale aired in June with the Lucian Alliance onboard Destiny. They had invaded. We'd done a really terrible job preventing them from taking over the ship. They're basically in control now. They have pretty much every character on the ship, except maybe Eli is threatened with death. And that's yeah, a even Chloe. Even Chloe is quite injured at this point. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she's she's got a bullet wound on her. And Matt and Greer are outside in spacesuits, running along the. Or so ship. we think, most definitely. Oh, yeah. yeah, trying to make it to the airlock before this pulsar goes off and they get fried with radiation. So, huge cliffhanger, lots of bullets flying, you know, Telford's been hit, Kiva, the leader of the Lucian Alliance, has been hit, just a bloodbath everywhere, TJ's been hit, apparently in the abdomen, pregnant TJ, looks like she's bleeding from the abdomen and unconscious, so... When yeah, let's not starts. forget, also, let's not forget that one of the last lines of the episode is the Lucian Alliance ordering the execution of Colonel Young. Yeah. That's like the last line of the uh, They're the getting show. ready to put him down. Destiny itself is also in a very precarious situation. You know, when the Lucian Alliance boarded the ship, 
It caused Destiny to come out of its FTL jump prematurely and right under this pulsar, which means that she may not be able to get up to speed again. They, they may have they may have put her in a situation where she cannot move on. Whereas, you know, if the Lucian Alliance hadn't brought an incoming wormhole to, to bring her out of FTL, she would have breezed on past mm. this pulsar. So the team is going to have to work time. together, yeah, to repair the engines if they're going to get out of here before it fries everyone. Now, do we know if this is an issue of not enough power? Or is it actually like an engine is busted or something? I'm not exactly sure. I mean, Scott and Greer went outside to repair an element of the the, the ship. And That's I think why they, they were sent they back outside. It. Yeah, and I they think fixed they, yeah, it, yeah. and they were on their way back. And I'm not sure if they had to get back. I, I believe they were jumping, getting back, trying to get back inside before the, the ship jumped back in FDL. Well, the Pulsar was going to go off and fry them because they were on yeah. the outside of the ship. Yeah. So the, the ship may jump into FTL. But it's interesting how, you know, we've gone through the list of all the characters being in Jeopardy, and Destiny herself is in Jeopardy, which is mm-hmm. wonderful about how the, the ship is a character itself. Yeah, there are ten characters on this show. Oh, absolutely. Although more now with see the that, Alliance. Yeah, I think we're going to see much more about the character of Destiny, which which we'll talk about. The question on the table, I think, is what do you want to see happen now that the Lucian Alliance is here? And one of the first things that I think is evident, if you've paid attention to information about Season 2, is that Robert the Lucian Never. Alliance is going to be going to be around for a while. We're not just going to clobber these guys in the season premiere and go on about our merry way. There are some major recurring characters from the Lucian Alliance who are going to be on Destiny. Mm-hmm. Uh, Robert Nepper, I watched the, the fourth season of Heroes, and he was he was the main bad guy. He's great. He's awesome. He's also on Prison Break, if you watch Prison Break. So he's going to be a recurring character in the first part of the season. Never seen the guy before, but I'm interested to see the crew expand, you know? I'm not looking for, you know, like the the whole Starfleet Maquis dynamic. I know it's been compared to this, but, you know, attrition is always a factor in this kind of a show, where you're out there far in the distant universe, you're not getting new supplies, and that includes people. You're not getting new cast members, so... I think this is a good time to add a group of people into the mix that that don't necessarily share our ideals and are going to add some conflict. These, these, this show is not designed to be an exuberant, happy show. This is a show about conflict. This is a show about controversy and, and a show about staying alive. The Lucian Alliance may not have been my first pick, my first choice to, of a group of people to bring in, but I think uh, especially with characters like Mike Dopu's character, um, mm-hmm. I, I think it's Varo. going to be Varro. That's it. Thank you. I think it's going to be uh, an interesting mix. It can also add a lot of complexity to um, not just the Lucian Alliance by having them there long enough to get to understand their society, but also by having them there, it might make the original cast bond together more strongly because out of adversity. Yeah. I mean, you know, out of adversity can come greater strength. So that's one of the things that I'm certainly hoping for. But as far as Aleutian Alliance is concerned, I think the biggest question for everybody really is, why is the destiny so important to them? That They have to get into that. We have yeah, to have and what can they, an understanding. What can they do that we can't? Well, they obviously know something we don't. That's very clear. To strand yourself that? clear across the universe, oh, yeah, yeah, you have to have but a good reason to do that. I mean, if you knew it was a one-way trip, I mean, you'd have mm-hmm. to have a really good reason to go. Because our guys didn't know it was a one-way trip when they went. Yeah, you maybe know, they, they have the keys, the keys to the so, Porsche. Well, <laughs> they, they know something. They know 
They know something, and it somehow seems tied into their belief system. Hmm. And we don't understand that either. So that I'm very intrigued to see how have that all play out. They may have her master code. They may have unearthed it or found it somewhere. And once they have access to the bridge, they may just be able to input a key or a, a combination or something and take control of her. Now, we do know that Destiny originated in the Milky Way galaxy. So mm-hmm. maybe there's some sort of ancient base out there that that the Lucian Lines has discovered with information on Destiny. But correct me if I'm wrong, up until now in the franchise, as far as story is concerned, other than Earth and a few Jaffa, in the Milky Way galaxy, nobody really knew about the Ancients, am I right? Or nobody that we knew about knew about the Ancients. That's fairly correct. Not until we We started unearthing stuff. Right. Yeah, we've met so, some civilizations that had some ancient stuff, like uh, It's Good to Be King, where the, the time-traveling puddle jumper was found. You know, there were sort of ruins with ancient script on it. But so the cultures didn't who necessarily there, know about them, yeah. They weren't yeah, aware of them. They didn't necessarily know who the ancients were and that right. they were the super advanced race. So mm-hmm. having that information makes the Lucian Alliance formidable on a whole other level, because that's... You know, that's pretty heavy information, so it's going to be very interesting to see how much of their understanding of the ancients plays into the choices that they make moving forward with the story in the second season. So that's, I mean, I, that alone for me is enough of an intrigue to want to, st- to tune in. Mm-hmm. And you make a good point, Diana, that when you have, you know, super-duper bad guys threatening to kill you, then, you know, the disagreement between the, mil- the military and the civilians on the ship maybe get put in a little perspective why would colonel young and camille necessarily butt heads quite so much when somebody like kiva is in charge well i would hope so you know i understand and i applaud ray's trying to reach out to the lucent alliance the second to last episode of the first season but now that she's seen how cutthroat they can be i'm hopeful that we're going to see she's smart enough to recognize mm-hmm. their safety and in unifying with Young and his people. Yeah, you know, that's the thing that I loved about season one is they didn't introduce a wraith. They didn't, they didn't introduce the Gould or the replicators. They wanted to say that, you know, and, and rightly so, when you don't have uh, a tremendous external threat other than simply surviving, we tend to we tend to go at it with one another more. I find that I find that immensely interesting for a time, you know, and yeah. bringing in the Lucian Alliance at about this point is just about right, I think. Yeah, and the external threat, I mean, the Lucian Alliance is external, but it's also internal if they start living among us mm-hmm. and, you know, sharing space at the breakfast table. That could become a really interesting dynamic, and maybe they can take the sort of, you know, Voyager crew versus Maquis and play it out darker and, and dirtier so that these guys don't become our best friends within five episodes. Right, but it's a very different society. I mean, the Lucian Alliance, these are people who have had to live under Gould rule yeah and had to scrape by and saw horrific things their whole life some of them were slaves probably on some of the ghoul planets okay whereas our guys you know a lot of them are pretty pampered yeah they had pampered lives they hadn't they had some of them had no awareness that this was going on in the galaxy at large so it's very two very different types of groups just as the military and the civilian scientists were two very different groups aboard the Destiny the first season, now you have this radically different group who's had to really live a hard life in ways that we can't even begin to imagine. 
I I'm hope not they... saying to be sympathetic per se, but it would be interesting to see some of those sy sympathies played on. Exactly. They need to take this opportunity and tell us who the Lucian Alliance really was. To overcome such atrocities and such horrid, horrid rulers who, the creatures who governed that galaxy, I mean, the, the immense amount of pride of being a part of, of a society or a group of societies that, that claimed Gould space for their own and decided to move past all the only problem is that you know they're they're almost as corrupt that's it's not like they're In what we've seen so far yeah. yeah 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 but that's an age-old trope i mean look at the, the movie district nine you know it took place in south africa with the where apartheid had just finished and here you had people behaving the same way to the prawn aliens as that they were behaving to as they had been treated when they were being kept in townships. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, that's the age-old problem. It goes back to what you were saying about the, the big bad in season one of Stargate Universe was ourselves. That mm -hmm. It's that Jean-Paul Sartre, you know, hell is other people, that existential element. And now this is going to be taking it a step further. Well, you know, we'll see. I mean, my, my concern at this point for the show and the energy of the show is I think it has to pick up. It ha the risks have to be bigger. Uh, they mm -hmm. have to take, we have to every week at the end of this episode, be more stressed out than we are before we start watching it. That's what I, I'm hoping they go for. I mean, that's that's what makes sure. for great television in 2010. We're seeing this with other series, that it's a series where after the episode's over and you're still thinking about it. And they certainly did that in the last few episodes of the first season. They've demonstrated they can do that, so I'm hoping they keep it up. It's also a fine line of uh, that they need to walk in regards to how much dark we want this show to go. I really don't want the show to go Battlestar Galactica dark, but you know, given the circumstances, it needs to go reasonably dark in in certain times. You know, you have great characters like Eli, which infuse the show with a great deal of levity, and in, and in some cases Greer as well. You know, he's he's oh, got yeah. a, he's got a bit of a mouth on him that's kind of fun too. But at the same time, you know, he's got that dark duality to him, which is equally equally in, more interesting, I think. But you know, the the show has greater opportunities for levity than than a show like uh, than a show like Galactica. If they lose that, then I think they're losing something big. Well, it's also the truth. I mean, as a, as a writer, I can tell you, you can't see the dark unless you have the light, and you can't see the light unless you have the dark. Yeah. You have to have both. You have to have that balance. And I, I, I'm hoping that we will see that balance find itself better in the second season. Look, it, you know, it was its freshman season. Yep. It was finding its way. And at the end there, I think it definitely found its way. So, I mean, I'm, I'm hearing that there's some great scripts coming. I'm very excited to, to see what Brad Wright, you know, has in store for us. I know Robert Cooper put in some terrific scripts. I think it's been demonstrated in the, season, the first season finale that the show is going to give us a lot of what we're hoping for. When you put it up against Atlantis or SG-1's first season, I have to say that uh, I, th I feel that SGU has the strongest freshman year. There are definitely some great ones out there, like Torment of Tantalus and Before I Sleep. I mean, you cannot beat those episodes. But I think overall, in terms of the character development and in terms of the, ty the type of stories that they, that they focused on, the production values of this show, high concept ideas, I think that, I think that SGU is, um, I think it's proving itself so far. Back to the Lucian Alliance question, mm. David, what I'm really looking forward to is seeing Lucian Alliance characters who are actually sympathetic. And I know that I know that there's going to be some. I know there's going to be at least one who is on screen long enough to be fleshed out, but then is also sympathetic. When we met the Lucian Alliance in the last couple of years of SG-1, they were thugs, they were criminals, 
Their agenda was about power, about territorial control, and about making money. And if that's all that they are, I'm not sure what they want out of Destiny. I don't think they're necessarily going to fly it back to the Milky Way Galaxy and, and sell it. I don't think that's their intent either. I mean, I do think that there is some deep core belief going on here, something that they're trying to, some destiny of their own they're trying to fulfill. Mm -hmm. But all those Lucian Alliance characters that that we've seen, uh, Natan and Anateo, they're really just sort of... Jupe. (laughs) Power-hungry. Petty thieves. Well, Kiva Kiva is pretty brutal. And we get a first taste of that sort of softer side of Lucian Alliance with Varro. Uh, at the end of season one, he's the yes. character that Mike, Mike Doppler plays, who is in the infirmary with TJ. She she patches him up, and then he's sort of talking to her about, we're taking over your ship, sorry about that. Wh- whoever ends up in control of the ship, we're going to have to learn how to live together. He seems to be maybe even interested in her, but, but certainly is sort of trying to build bridges or, or the first hints of bridges even before the conflict is over mm-hmm. so I'm really interested in that that kind of Lucian Alliance who we can sympathize with not just because they're nice to TJ but because their motives are something higher greater more interesting than just power and money the fact that they're on this ship now and they've taken such a risk to go so far across the universe knowing that it's one way says that the Lucian Alliance, at least this branch of them, has a greater interest than than money and the the ability to sell destiny for a price. Yep. You know, that, that there must be something to their agenda that is greater than this. It may not be tremendously beyond selling destiny, but it's something different and I think I think that that's going to be an interesting route to explore. Oh, I know what it is. I just figured out their agenda. I just figured it out. Okay, the call blue, it. The blue aliens. They're going to try and sell CASA to the blue aliens. <laughs> They're oh, opening up a oh, new market bad. for addicted space corn. <laughs> that's bad. No. You know, if you go back to the guy who is with TJ in the infirmary, he makes it very clear that there is a deep-seated drive to be on this ship that is beyond profit or anything that is uh just of regular everyday route this that there is that there's some that there's a level of devotion to this mission and he makes that very, very clear i think don't you mm-hmm. so no i don't think this is about that the casa thank you very much <laughs> oh bad 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 no 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 I, I don't think that's what's going on my hope is that, however, is that SGU's writers learn from Voyager and don't have an assimilation happen quickly between the Alliance, leftover Alliance personnel, and the, the original Destineers. That happens way too fast with the McKee and the Federation. It was like one day they were on opposite ends, and the next day they're buddy-buddy, and they're hanging out in the hollow suite together. So we need to, you know, that's, it's more conflict. We need that conflict, and there needs to be cultural misunderstandings happening. And I suspect that that's an area, just knowing these writers, that they're smart enough to, to keep that alive and keep it going. It happens just way too fast on Voyager. What about um, specific characters this year? Who are you looking forward to seeing grow? We doubled a little bit of this in the 100th episode, but uh, we're just around the corner now. Well, I mean, I think really at the end of the day, who's the character of the original Again, I'll say it so you can laugh again. Destineers, who is the of the Destineers? Who's the one we know the least about? For me, it's Colonel Young. I think mm. we know less about him than we know about any other character. Why? 
Really? You know, why is somebody having seizures and still an active duty? Why is it that he had an affair with TJ yet becomes so obsessively jealous about Telford? Why, why does he keep making these really bad choices when clearly he had to have done a lot to have become a colonel? It is not easy to become a colonel in the United States Air Force. It really isn't. You can get to major fairly easy, but after that, uh-uh. It's very tough to become a colonel. So for mm. somebody who evidently is qualified and competent, what the heck is going on with him? And what's his backstory? And was he part of the SGC? I think we know less about, I mean, we know about Greer's family. We know about Scott. We know about Chloe. TJ, we, I would say TJ, we, we need to know a little bit more little about bit. too. You know, Eli, we know about. I mean, is there any other character that we know less about than Colonel? I'm Rush, we even know about. Seriously, is there any other character we know less about than Colonel Young? Yeah, in terms of backstory and motivation, too. I mean, I, yeah. keep, I keep harping on the fact he's so non-communicative of a leader. He will assemble everybody in the gate room, and then he will walk in, deliver a piece of news, and then walk out. This is not a guy who makes, you know, inspiring speeches. No, I mean, what, what I kind of wonder why that is. Yeah, what makes him tick? Yeah. What makes him tick? What's his, what's his story? What's his deal? We know next to nothing about that. Next to nothing. And the other thing is it's going to be very interesting to see his response to TJ, whether, I mean, does she survive or not? She's carrying his child. Does she survive or not? Does the baby survive or not? We don't even know that. I've seen spoilers on both sides of the fence on that one. I am very confused. So, <laughs> you know, we see that he is feeling the regret of all that, but I'm very curious to see how he's going to come down on all this. That's, you know, to me, that's fascinating. I mean, Rush, I think, in a way, we know more about Rush than we do any of them. I think that he really, I think that he largely remains unexplored. I mean, we, we know about Gloria. We know that he was teaching. We know that he was picked up by Daniel to start working on on the Icarus project. But what is he really after? I don't think we know that yet. And I think that that is the big overarching question for the show. What is this guy really after? You don't bring in someone like Robert Carlyle and say, yeah, I just want you to you know, do this and, and come in and, you know, be be odd about this ancient technology. There's something going on with this guy, and we don't know what it is yet. That his his role in the show is an overarching plot for this uh, for this for this series. I, I'm really interested to see where they're going to take him. Do you think it's coupled with what we're being told this season? And here's a spoiler: this season we're being told that we're going to find out what Destiny's real mission is. Is it possible that? Rush has known that all along what it is. I think that there's a great possibility of that. Um, or that he, I, I think it's possible that he's had an intuition as to what it is. But yeah, I think, I think that this guy is out for more than just scientific understanding for humanity's sake. I think this, I think this dude could really potentially be ultimately out for himself. He was certainly made much more sympathetic in human when yeah. he got his backstory oh, about the death of his wife. And, you know, I thought from before the show premiered and, and through the early episodes, I thought Rush is, is taking us to Destiny because he knows more than, than he's letting on. He knows something about the ship, you know, something about why it's there, what it's doing, what it could potentially do for him. But as the season went on, I think I kind of – I got the sense that that's, that's true maybe less than less. I'm not sure if he really knows all that much more than we do. But there are certainly big mythology questions that the producers have promised to answer in season two. Like, what is the mission of the Destiny? Why did the ancients launch it? So maybe there are possibilities for us to find out that Rush 
did know more. And we know that we're going to see Gloria again. If you've watched the trailer, we know that we're going to see Russia's wife. She's in his head, it seems like. It seems like she's in his head, yeah. And I'm kind of wondering, is she a psychological manifestation of of his consciousness? Or is it maybe destiny actually communicating with him? Well, it feels a little Cylon-esque to me. Well, it's it's a trope, and it's really how the characters respond to the trope that makes a story distinctive. You know, so I mean, human being the one where Destiny, uh, as his wife, communicated with him. Yeah, well, so we believe, yeah. Right. Well, I mean, that was the impression I got from it. But so was, was I mean mine that too, yeah. yeah, and that was different than Caprica Six. That was definitely different than Caprica Six. You know, I think the bigger question with Destiny's mission is how important is it to the universe, you know, and if Rush has an inkling of what it is, that would be the ultimate redemption plot for Rush, if it's something that is critical to the universe at large, what Destiny's trying to accomplish. That's where I'm hoping this is going, that it's something mm. so big and so important and critical to the universe in its entirety, and Rush has been suspect of this all along, so in the end, okay, he's been Machiavellian about it, but for the right reasons. Now, there's that line in the advertisements that they were running before the season premiere last year where Rush says that Destiny could be the most important discovery humankind has ever made since Stargate itself. And that line actually, I think, ended up being cut from the broadcast episode I for think air. So too. But mm-hmm. it did say it at some point in, in the script. Yes, they did. I remember it in a lot of the trailers, in fact. Well, now, before we talk more about Destiny and its mission, other characters, what do you hope? I mean, as, as a viewer, not necessarily making predictions or, or the spoilers that we've read, but what, what do you hope to see? I mean, the, the one spoiler that is out there, people will, will recognize immediately from the trailer, is that there's a girl. And Eli, poor Eli and his unrequited love for Chloe, needs to find himself somebody else. So that's a direction for, for the Eli character that I am really excited about less pining over Chloe, and maybe he can actually even find a little bit of grown-up adult happiness with somebody else. Mm-hmm. I would be fine with that. I'd like to see a little less pining and a little more plot. <laughs> yeah, you know? Diana and I talked about this. There's a lot of pining on this show. So a little more plot, like I said, would be great. I want to see TJ. I want to see the TJ that we saw early in the first season who makes a terrific second-in-command. I want to see the women characters more actively involved with the future of whatever comes their way. And I want to see the women characters spending less time talking about pining about men. You know, I just, you know, that's that whole Lechtbell test. When you get two women together in a scene, if they start talking about the men they're pining after, it just makes the woman derogatory. And these women characters, they are really well realize but they haven't been given a chance yet i think with the way they've set up the second season there is ample opportunities for them to do tremendous things that to help everybody else yeah things that i really loved with characters like vanessa james in season one was when she was out in the field you know commanding a rescue mission uh, to try and track down our, our lost people that kind of stuff getting out in the field and demonstrating like SG-1 did for so many years with Sam Carter. She is not only great with command and making command decisions, but everything else that she brings to the table as a scientist, as an expert in the Stargate and, and wormhole physics. That was what made me fall in love 
with Sam Carter just as much or more than the fact that Amanda Tapping is stunning. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, they re- she asked them, write me as a person first. I'll take mm-hmm. care of the feminine stuff. And these, uh, these women actresses are extraordinary. They have great credentials behind them. They can take care of the woman's stuff. But, and we've already seen, like, water. I keep bringing water up, and I think there's a very good reason for that, is that we see that TJ has extraordinary potential to make the right calls for what needs to be done and not be done. She respects the military. She, it demonstrates why she joined the military. She can have a ramrod straight back when she needs to about what needs to go down. She can obviously handle a weapon. So take advantage of that with her character and use that. And I'm hopeful we're going to see that in the second season. I really think that the the female that I want to see step up is Ray. I adore Ming-Na. I I think she's a terrific human being. I got to to meet her... uh, not this Comic Con, but the the previous one, and she she can act, man. And I think oh, yeah. that there's a lot more to this character than just an IOA representative who's always just looking out for the people, you know. And the military is not doing what's right. We need to get them to do what's right, you know. I think that there's a lot more to this character that uh, deserves to be explored, and I hope that they give the actress that opportunity this season. Yeah, they need to write her smart. Is what they need to do. She needs to be three dimensional, and obviously. When they show in her home life, she can be very smart. You know, she's very three-dimensional. So let's see some of that on board the Destiny in her having to deal with everything else that's going on there. Mm-hmm. There was some great expansion of that character when she was confined to a chair as a quadriplegic. That was an amazing episode for her. I thought that was very interesting. A person who is used to having authority or always trying to get it, being in a situation where she is paralyzed... I felt felt was a great exploration of that character. Just to see her absolutely terrified was great. Yeah, I do too. Matthew Scott's a character that I have really been excited about seeing him come out of his shell is not the right word. Who from day one has got Colonel Young's back. Colonel Young is in charge, and he he knows the score. He knows what's going on. He's a very competent young soldier. Uh, but as we talked about in the podcast. For when he's out in the field, he's also not necessarily making terrific command decisions. What I'm really interested in seeing is if Young continues down this path of sort of, in terms of his command, sort of self-destruction, his second-in-command, how long do you continue to keep the back of somebody who is self-destructing? Yeah, he need, he, I think we are going to see him move out of what I like to call his awkward phase, and into a getting the ability to be able to see the bigger picture. And I think we saw some of that towards the end of the first season also, especially when there was that somewhat of a betrayal from Chloe, which forced him to step back and look at the bigger picture. That was the first big hiccup in that relationship, and that causes growing pains. So hopefully he's going to be able to step up because clearly Young is just on a downward spile at this point. Yeah, and when Young was was torturing Telford in the airlock and Matt decided to basically tell Camille a little bit more than he probably ought to as a, as a 2IC, second in command, that showed that he's he's willing to, you know, not necessarily be the sort of puppy dog who goes to his colonel to make sure everything that he does is all right. 
Well, he's having doubts about his his commander's tactical decisions, and right, he, it's clear Young that he feels betrayed that that he wasn't filled in on this whole this whole trick that Young decided to pull. Something very dangerous, and I think right. I think Young rec- I think Scott would have had his back if he told him the truth. I th- at least I think, but he didn't, yeah. and now it's got Scott on the fence. Of like, okay, what's going on here? I think that's a very real consequence of Young not communicating what he's doing with people. That you know, throwing Telford in an airlock and ordering Brody to evacuate the air is is a great example. I guess it wasn't an airlock, really. It was a it was a storage room or something. But um, that's a great example of Young's lack of communication of what he's doing, what he's thinking, what he's planning. And I would love to see sort of a fracture between Colonel Young and Lieutenant Scott as a result of that that incommunicativeness. Yeah, there was a father there's a father son dynamic there that needs to be broken up and the only way that's going to be broken up is if the son grows up, you know. Mm. So, yes, I think there's definite potential for that here. I mean, Young is in some ways Young is very repressed. He's a very repressed character who does not share his counsel and the repercussions of that are now coming back in spades. Indeed. Destiny. So they've uh, promised that more is going to be revealed this season about the ship's mission, uh, and speculations abound as to what it is. Uh, but you know, also there's there, there's the continuing threat of not being able to get back home, which I I, I was thinking about this. You know, if they manage to turn Destiny around and head back the other way. You know, you wouldn't exactly want to wander out into the universe with this ship. You know, you'd want to stay close to a Stargate, the Stargate network, and that means following the route back that you took. Well, let's review this for a second. What is its mission? It's not a Cedar ship. The Cedar ships went out ahead of it. They're ahead of it, yeah. Right, so this is a ship that had beds, and it had sheets, and it had blankets, and pillows, and it had air, and all that. It's a science ship. purpose to the ship. Do you know that? Um, We don't know that. Not specifically, but I mean that's, it's ba- it how I, I it's basically I think a ship of exploration is is what it is first and foremost I would think, but I think you you're know, making an assumption though is what I'm trying to that's say that's entirely possible. <laughs> There's a couple of things that are out there that have sort of had us scratching our heads. The first fact being that all the stargates have been placed. You know we don't know how many there are in a galaxy. But the Cedar ships are plunking down Stargates for some reason. So apparently whoever was going to come to Destiny would be using those gates and going to those planets, even though I think we've only encountered one that was ever populated by by sentient life that we know of. And that one, the civilization lost, was in ruins. With the Um, Avalos, yeah. Oh no! The, the, other... the lost episode, the the one where they were underground. But he, she's she's right. That's that system that appeared before them that didn't have a stargate. What the system? one with the obel- The one with the, the, obelisk? One with the obelisk didn't have a stargate. They, no, it oh, didn't. Faith. Yeah. 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 No, it didn't. But yeah, they've the been to multiple fact. galaxies at this point. Right. And the other factor that has me scratching my head is Destiny. Is obviously we, we're not in control of the ship right now. It's it's on a course where we can't. We can't actually stop and use the Stargates and explore these planets. Yeah, so but I don't I think, think that was designed to do that. I think that that's just a consequence of their lack of understanding. Here's a question. We don't even know if prior to our, the, the humans coming aboard it at the beginning of the season, if it was making those stops. We don't even know that, if it was making those stops or not. Mm-hmm. It could have been yeah, going been... on a straight course. There might be a destiny to this. There might be a destination for the destiny 
And now that it's sensing humans on board, it's been stopping for mm -hmm. air and water and food and all those things. Right. Well, if there was a destiny for the destiny, then it's got to be <laughs> millions of years behind it. Because the ship was not, it was not supposed to take this long to get to her. If there was an ultimate des destination for the for the ship, I think when they gated to it, I think they would have gated to a ship that was in orbit of that final destination. You know, parked there for millions of years. Um, we have we have if to keep you mean in mind if there was like a like a, a physical yeah a location that location she was going to we were going yeah well like but an if the location space or if there were no gates there yet and they only had FTL at the time that they sent this out, it might take they may have the ancients may have seen something's going to happen at a particular destination millions of years from now. And we have to send this ship off and we'll see gates along the way so we'll be able to hop on board this thing when the time comes because we're the ancients. We'll be around for millions and millions of years. They just had this, they never thought at the point, that point they hadn't planned on ascension. So there may have been this long range plan, this millions of year plan that they had in place before they got distracted by the wraith, by the plague. I mean, all those things happened after the ship went off, I think. I mean, I, that's the mm -hmm. biggest problem of all this is we when don't the hell happened, really have, yeah. Well, we don't have a sense of really, I mean, you have the whole thing with relative time relativity. Because in a certain sense, when Rush says destiny is hundreds of thousands of years old, on the one hand, that could be technically correct if you take into account issues of relativity. Because on the other hand, in fixed point time, we're talking about this ship. Obviously, it was behind the times technologically. It didn't use the ATA gene, for one mm -hmm. thing, right? Mm -hmm. Seems okay. to predate Atlantis. It predates what the Milky Way tech and the, and the Pegasus tech that we were exposed to in the first two series. So, But even back then, even that version of the Stargate worked, but... They didn't have hyperspeed at that point. They were using FTL. So they mm -hmm. had to make long-range plans. To what and for what, we don't know. I was very excited when that news came out because it brought yeah. back the speculative nature of the show, which is what science fiction is, speculation. Mm -hmm. What if? And as I look ahead at season two, getting into those elements of, of the mythology, of the history of the ancients, of the purpose of the destiny... And then when I look at the specific episodes, which if people do want some spoilers, they can go to our Universe Season 2 episode guide on GateWorld. Uh, we have titles for all 20 episodes because they started writing in December, January last year and started filming in March after the Olympics. I, I'm really excited about these episodes that are coming up. There are some really cool ideas that are, I think, getting away from the elements of the show in the first season that didn't necessarily resonate with me as well, like sitting around in dark corridors, mm -hmm. you know, emoting, but to actually getting ball. out there and having external threats and figuring science out what's fiction. going on. The mythology yeah, I mean, of, of yeah. you know, the things in science fiction that we love. Exactly. You're right. I think we're, everybody's going to, I think it's going to be the same reaction people had with the second season of SG-1. I mean, I, I remember the first time I watched the series and it's the second season started and I sat mm -hmm. up and went, oh, hello. Oh, when is, Carter swallows a gold? Oh, yeah. I mean, yeah. I was, you know, I, I immediately got, okay, this is really going to go someplace. I am, I am committed now. And I think we're going to see the same thing happen here. And listen, let's be frank. You can say the same for almost any television series. There are a few television series who their first season is brilliant. Most series, 
that first season is an exploration to see what sticks, what works. Well, you know, mm-hmm. there are shows like Lost and like Heroes that had phenomenal first seasons. And in the case of in the case of Heroes, you know, where it, when it got to the end of that, I wasn't interested anymore. And I've heard a lot of people say that the second season sucks. So there there are a lot of shows that get caught up in their own, ooh, look at us, and, and look at how much critical acclaim we are getting. And then year two happens, and it just sophomore slump, you know? Either way, it could go either way. I don't I don't think it's going to be a bad season. I think it's going to be an even better season. But it could. It could go either way. Well, also, these are veterans, though. I mean, these are hardcore veterans, the exactly. guys running the show. Exactly. They know, they know better, and I have that trust in them. And I yep. suspect most viewers do. If they look mm-hmm. back over the last 15 years... I think it's warranted to have trust and to see what's going to happen now in second season. I think we're all going to be very surprised. Well, yeah, but not just the blind trust, but the fact that what we've heard about season two so far, all the stuff that we've been talking about over the last hour, I'm really excited about season two. I am really stoked. Yeah, I mean, it looks like they're raising the stakes, and I think that's one of the biggest complaints that everybody had is the stakes need to be higher every episode. It needs to, as you say, not be about sitting around in dark corridors. I think with that happening, which is exactly what happened with season two of SG-1, the stakes got raised. The show, I think it'll answer a lot of the concerns that people had from the first season. So is it a week from Tuesday yet? Do we get to watch? (laughs) Stargate Universe Season 2, of course, as we know, is premiering in the U.S. on the Sci-Fi Channel on a new night. Remember, don't go looking for it on Friday. It's going to be on Tuesday nights, premiering on September 28th. 9 p.m. is at the same time slot, and SGU is going to be paired with Caprica this season, this first half season at least. October 1st, the show is going to premiere on Space in Canada at its usual time, and also on Sci-Fi Channel in Australia. And if you live in the UK and you're watching Sky One, it's going to be on the next Tuesday, October 5th. So we still have Diana here. Before we let you go, Diana, give us an update on your SG-1 novel, Four Dragons. Is it out yet? Oh, Four Dragons is out. It's in the bookstores, and it's on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and every other online bookstore as well that you can get it from. And so and well, and so far, feedback has been a lot of fun. And I could not have written the book without GateWorld.net, as I make very clear in the acknowledgments that Omnipedia is to die for. And every SG writer should be required to use it and have it open in their browser <laughs> as they're writing. Thank you. So as I'm working through the sequel now, it continues to be a great tool. If you had 30 seconds to tell us, what, what is Four Dragons about? Four Dragons is about, it's really about Lord Yu and why the heck he has been our friend, even when he hasn't been our friend. What is behind his level of cooperation and lack of cooperation? And why is he driven to keep SG-1 in the game against Anubis. I'm sure you'll also tackle his senility. A little bit. You know, I mean, that's just a fact of biological life. He's, get, he's old. He's quite old, and the book does get into that. The book really gets into the history of the real Emperor Yu, as well as we can tell. And okay. there are some very interesting matchups and dates between big events that happened in ancient China and things that happen in the chronology of the Stargate franchise in regards to Anubis. And I take advantage of that. Interesting. Yes. Well, pick it up. Check it out. I've got my copy sitting on my nightstand. Thank you, dear, so much for joining us. Well, thanks for having me. Pleasure as always. Thanks, everybody, for listening to episode 101. It's really exciting to be back for a new season. This is, I guess, technically this would be the third season of the Gate World podcast. 
It'll be interesting to see how it goes. I think uh, we've done about 50 episodes per year up until now. But that hiatus felt good. I, I recharged my batteries. So yeah. we'll have to talk about it and see once we come up to December and get to the next break, how many shows we're going to do during the break. I think we may end up doing maybe close to 30 shows a year. We'll see what happens, though. I mean, this this was a, a good break that we needed. You know, obviously the, the Tammy Zone is in uh, full swing now. Please uh, please check that out on, on GateWorld. It's a companion podcast series. Tammy yep, and is... she's also on iTunes now. GateWorld Podcast is is back to weekly now. So we'll be talking about new episodes of SGE every single week through the first week of December. I think probably first or second week is when the mid-season finale will be. I'm not sure now that we're on Tuesday nights if we're going to have an episode Thanksgiving week, because they usually take Thanksgiving week off. Mm-hmm. And that's just sort of a scheduling curiosity. The other thing that I wanted to say was Wednesday has been our podcast publishing day. And now that SGU is moving to Tuesdays, we're going to have to figure out what the heck to do, because we really only have the weekends for you mm-hmm. and I to get together and record, mainly because you work full-time and I am eight hours ahead of you. What we're going to aim for is, is now Mondays, and I know it doesn't give people a lot of time to listen to the podcast before they turn around and watch the next episode, uh, but we're going to try and have it the first thing on Monday, so tune in and listen to our discussion of that episode, and then... And then watch the next one on Tuesday. So we do have some listener mail this week. Let's open up the mailbag. Listener mail. Hey guys, it's Ian from Akron, Ohio, calling about the episode 99 about ancient history. Uh, you guys were talking about the Dakara weapon. And as far as I understood it from the series, what happened was the plague came to the galaxy and they developed this weapon to eradicate all life in the galaxy. They completely started fresh from scratch. So then they seeded, they seeded life. Uh, they used the weapon after they left to then seed life in the galaxy as a new beginning and maybe set it up so that way they would indeed uh, become humans after millions of years. So they leave the galaxy, go to the Pegasus galaxy, which they find is far more primitive than the Milky Way galaxy. So they set up Human, that they seed human DNA throughout the galaxy, which then intermingles with the erased bug, becomes erased. And so that's how humans are developed quicker on in the Pegasus galaxy than in the Milky Way. Because if you notice, um, the human civilizations in the Pegasus are about the same level as they are in the Milky Way, but you'd assume that they left for the Pegasus galaxy millions of years, or they started the, the process in the Pegasus galaxy around the same time that they started the process in the Milky Way. Uh, so maybe they started from scratch in the Milky Way, only leaving planets, certain planets whole from when they released the Dakar weapon to eradicate all life uh, to completely demolish the plague, whereas in the Pegasus, you know, they had, they had sped up the process a little bit, so that way there was more, more humans. And possibly the reason why they decided to spread humans isn't because they're egocentric, which maybe a very plausible answer, um, but maybe they realized that their frailty and that they, they couldn't live forever, yet if they seeded people who are humans that had shared similar DNA and, and would evolve to become similar to the ancients, then the, the, new, the new ancients, the new humans, could then discover what they left behind and pick it up and start it again. So as, as opposed to just trying to live forever, uh, they just started again so that way then a new generation it's like their children could pick up their work and continue on spreading their influence throughout the universe 
All right, thank you guys. Uh, can't wait for the next God podcast. Hey guys, it's Ian from Akron, Ohio again. I'm calling about the the same episode, episode 100, about uh, Ancient Ascension. As far as I understand it, uh, or as what I gathered from the show, I suppose, is that they had ascended earlier before, I think in the show you said that pretty much around the time they left Atlantis and other than Pegasus Galaxy is when they ascended. But as far as I understood, they had already been ascending for a long time. Um, and they had, you know, there'd been like different generations, you know, some people would decide to ascend because that's what they thought was like the next step. Whereas other people would prefer, prefer to, you know, stay in their human form and, and further advance the human race, uh, the ancient race, I guess. And, uh, so, you know, by the time Atlantis, the end of Atlantis, you know, they realized that their civilization had all but uh, pretty much ended. So the majority of them then ascended and, you know, ascension continued. You know, maybe some people were more, like, some, there were, like, flukes within uh, the race that, you know, some people could ascend, other people couldn't still, and then eventually they all got to the point where they could ascend, but it required, you know, years of dedication, and some people didn't feel like that was what they were, they should do. And so the others are actually people who had ascended long, long ago, like maybe there was a mass exodus where they thought that this was this was the thing to do when the plague came, perhaps. You know, a lot of people maybe thought, all right, well, I don't think that I, I don't want to leave home, so I'm only I'm going to ascend. Uh, and those people became the others. And then as people towards the end of the Atlantis civil, uh, Pegasus civilization, they ascended. They followed what the others had already gathered, and you know that's already they had already established the rule of non-interference. And they just enforced it with people like Portland and Alma de Sala. And then my question for you guys is, do you think um, that the ancients, all-knowing and all-powerful as ascendant beings, uh, are aware of our, uh, our presence on destiny? And they're going to try to travel through their level of existence to get to us. And uh, maybe maybe we will see them on the destiny at some point because... As, they, as I said, they're rather omnipotent, so I'm assuming that they would uh, know of our presence and want to seek us out eventually. Uh, obviously, after, say, uh, Rush finds the bridge or, or years down the road after we've like fully understood and unlocked all the secrets of the destiny. All right. Bye. Thanks, Ian, for your voicemails. The, hmm... The ancients, you know, the thing is that uh, they what Coop told us a couple of years ago is that the ancients occupy the space-time continuum around the Milky Way galaxy. They're not going to be out there in the greater universe. Yeah, so I don't think you're going to. They're not omnipresent. Right. Exactly. They don't. They don't take up all. They don't intersect all space and time simultaneously. And even if they did, I really don't think that they care about us as much as some people think that they do. They, they aren't interested in us. They're, you know, they're like they're in that Waffle House in the sky, and you know, <laughs> the, uh, even there, even up there, there's just a couple of them that are ancients. You know, there's just they don't care. Yeah, they certainly didn't care when Anubis was about to wipe out all life in the Milky Way galaxy in Reckoning. I do kind of wonder though. If you got somebody up there who was was involved in the Destiny project, what does that person think of Destiny? If it really has this gigantic galactic important mission, mm. uh, mission of mission of galactic importance. Well, there could be a, that ancient could be flying with the ship, but I don't think so. Yeah. I don't think. I so. don't think we're gonna we're gonna get paid a visit though because we're far far away in a different galaxy. 
and haven't we seen ancient beings before have to like hitch a ride in order to, yep. to go to a different galaxy like yeah. in truth they use stargates definitely hello uh yes my name is steven from mechanicsville virginia i was calling to say uh that i've been listening to your podcast from the beginning um it's been a great uh, wealth of knowledge for uh, Stargate uh, information, and I wanted to thank you very much for everything you do. Um, I'm hoping that you'll be, um, I was checking to see if you're going to have any more um, Gate World interviews uh, up on the uh, Gate World interview uh, podcast, and um, I'm looking forward for 50 to 100 more of both. Keep up the great work. Uh, and have you heard anything more about um, Stargate Universe uh, second season? I look forward to uh, the next one. Hopefully they'll uh, continue. All right. Thank you very much. Bye. The quick answer, Stephen, is yes. There are more GateWorld interviews coming, and there are going to be audio interviews. In fact, uh, hopefully there's, there's some audio up uh, by the time this podcast goes live. Because our boy Chad has been going nuts, and he's getting some awesome interviews at conventions. He's also been on phone with the SGU cast for the last couple of weeks. So um, we have we've we've kind of had an interview hiatus for a few months, but they're going to be coming fast and furious. And some of them will be audio, so they will show up in the Gate World interviews. Is the name of the podcast on iTunes? Hi, it's Pat from Minnesota calling in for the viewer question you guys left on the hundredth episode bash on your last podcast, about seeing where Stargate Universe should go in the next season. What I'm most excited to see is how they obviously resolve the Lucian Alliance problem of them being stuck on the ship for the foreseeable future. I'm hoping that it's not some quick fix like we saw in Star Trek Voyager and then where how Uncle Chuckles and the rest of the Maquis crew joined Voyager and all was happily ever after. I'd like to see more abrasiveness and Definitely a lot more conflict that is prevalent through not just this season, but even into the next season to see where that goes. I think it would add a nice dynamic to it, and I'm sure the writers are already planning on doing that. Uh, lastly, but not least, a question I have been thinking of, and one that we always debate at work that I'd like to have you guys weigh in on is who would fight, who would win a fight in a no-holds-bar contest, no weapons involved, just purely fisticuffs, between five of my favorite characters. The fighters would be Spock, Worf, Ronan, Teal'c, and the wild card, Jack Bauer. Not holding much hope out for Mr. Bauer, but I'd like to see what you guys would pick to win a fight between those guys in a battle royale. Thanks very much, and you guys do a great job. Bye. Well, who would win in a fight in a no-holds-barred, no-weapons fight? I've never seen 24, I'll tell you that right now. Well, Jack Bauer is pretty badass. Okay, can we, we... This is a long list here. Spock, Worf... Ronan Dex, Teal, Jack. Can we rule anybody out first? Narrow this down. I think I think Jack would probably be taken out if he had if yeah, he yeah. had no weapons. Yeah. Then I think I don't know. It's that's really hard. <laughs> well, the Teal Ronan thing has been answered on screen. If they I go in at least an hour, yeah. Uh, Worf, I don't necessarily Worf contending. Spock, you know, with that nerve pinch, though, I don't know. That's uh, he'd 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 hold out there for a little bit. Yeah. I think it may be left with Ronan and Teal'c. 
I think Ronan and Teal are the last two men standing, and they fight to a draw. Yeah, thanks everybody for calling in, and and if you want to call in after you see the season premiere of SG, that will be the topic of the next podcast. Uh, so the the season premiere again airs in the U.S. on September 28th. That's a Tuesday. Uh, so call in and tell us what you think about Intervention. Did it live up to your expectations? Was it a fantastic premiere? Was it a satisfying resolution as, as much as it, it does resolve the Lucian Alliance storyline from the end of, of Season 2, from the end of Season 1, The Invasion? Um, intervention, that's the topic of our October 4th podcast. Remember, we're looking at Mondays now. So then on October 11th, we'll talk about Aftermath, Episode 2 of Season 2. And October 18th, the third episode of the season, after I wrote some spoilers, which you can find at GateWorld, I am super stoked about episode three, Awakening. That's all we have for this. Special thanks once again to Dana Botsford. Fantastic. She is awesome. Thanks again to Russell for editing the podcast. And thanks, everybody, for listening. We're off and running. Episode 101. We're into the three digits now, aren't we? We are. Uh, call the GateWorld Podcast hotline at area code 951-262-1647. Or if you don't want to call a U.S. line and live in another country, you can always email in a brief audio recording. Try and keep it to a, a minute, minute and a half. Email to webmaster at gateworld.net. Or if you want to join the podcast discussion, we still have the podcast feedback thread running at GateWorld Forum. You can find a link to that and to everything else that we've talked about this week in the episode number 101 show notes for the SGU Season 2 pregame show. Be sure to check out The Tammy Zone, our uh, sister show on GateWorld.net and on iTunes. T-A-M-E-Z-O-N-E. And check out Diana's book for dragons on store shelves now at Amazon.com. And check out the PropWorks auction this week. PropWorks auction this weekend. Yeah, StargateArtifacts.com. You'll probably see me in there somewhere. GateWorld, this is Darren. This is David. And we'll see you back here next week-ish for more of the GateWorld podcast. Thanks for tuning in.